right. Good group of people. Nobody freaked out on me. Well, Jonah, the book of Jonah. You know, we don't think it's relevant today, and, and I thought about this. I thought, you know, really America is really filled with Jonahs, and so is the church. Because in today's world, it seems like it's so easy to draw lines and to say uh, whether they are actual or perceived, we feel we have enemies, people who are against us, who want to destroy us. And so what we do is this. We want to see God's wrath poured out on them. We want to see God judge them. You know, that political party you don't agree with, that political figure you don't agree with, that coworker that is causing you problems. You know, we want to see God bring judgment to them. And, uh, you know, really judgment, the judgment of humans is always more harsh and angry than the judgment of God. Because God's judgment is always perfectly just, but at the same time, perfectly merciful. And that's why what we're going to find out today in, in the book of Jonah is one of the main points is that God is merciful. But I think another primary point is that God has called us to be merciful as he is merciful. And that's hard in today's world. From the world's point of view, uh, Jonah in the Bible is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. You know, there's no way that that could have happened. Come on. As a matter of fact, I was watching a, a, a story yesterday, and it was talking about how in 1925 at the Scopes trial, remember that? where a teacher was brought up because he was teaching uh, evolution and they brought him before the court and the court uh, went on and on and, and the, the guy who was defending the teacher, I think his name was Charles Darrell, said um, to the, the, prosec or, or to the, uh, the other attorney, he said, so do you really believe that God, that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, literally? And the other attorney said, yes, I do. And that was what flipped the court, or they actually found the guy guilty, but the public opinion then shifted at that point. Because certainly, this whole story of Jonah is just an allegory. It's not real, is it? Well, as a matter of fact, it is real. It's a real account of a real man named Jonah who wrote this book in the third person sometime between 793 and 758 B.C., and of all the prophets that have recorded, the, ma the major prophets and the minor prophets, of all the prophets, Jonah is the only recorded prophet who actually rejected God's commission to him. Take a look. Here's an outline of, God, of the book of Jonah. I didn't know how to put it, break it down, so I broke it down in this way. Chapters 1 and 2 are God commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh. Chapter 1 was Jonah runs from God yet is saved by God. Chapter 2 Jonah runs to God in a prayer of repentance. And then chapters 3 and 4, God recommissions Jonah. In chapter 3, Jonah warns of the judgment and Nineveh repents. And chapter 4, Jonah sulks and God rebukes him. So there's the outline of the book of Jonah. Now, 
Ryan did a good job of explaining history, and we need to f- understand why Jonah was so against going and preaching to this town called Nineveh. What was his problem? Well, what you need to understand is that Jonah was a prophet in the nation of Israel, okay? 30 years before the Assyrian invasion. And if you remember last time I preached, we talked in the book of Amos on how he prophesied that the Assyrians were going to come and destroy and take captive Israel, okay? So what happened is, is that he, was, he probably heard that prophecy by Amos, right? Hadn't been fulfilled yet. But he knew that Assyria was going to have an impending invasion against his homeland and was going to destroy it. So what does that have to do with Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now you get why he had a problem? Now you see why this call that God had in his heart to go and preach this gospel was something that would go contrary to what he wanted. He didn't want the Assyrians to come and wipe out his homeland and the people that he loved, the people that he cared for. He wanted the Assyrian capital of Nineveh to be judged by God with the hopes that if Assyria, if Nineveh was destroyed, which was basically also the base from which uh, the Assyrians attacked Israel, so it was a military base for them as well. He was hoping that if they got wiped out and judged, then maybe Israel would kind of get, not have that judgment come to them. So you see his motivation, why he was doing what he was doing. So he was going to turn the hand of God by his actions. You know, if I just do this, then whatever judgment is coming will not happen. Sometimes I think we can do that as well, can't we? We kind of put it upon ourselves that, yeah, we know hard things are coming for someone or something. And so we say, well, if I just do this, then it won't happen. But the law of reaping and sowing, or sowing and reaping, is real. And sometimes we so badly don't want that to happen in our own lives or someone else's life that we try to manipulate God. But you can't do that with God. He's God, you aren't. And Jonah found that out. So what Jonah did was that he decided that he was going to take a different route instead of obeying God. Take a look, God's word. Jonah chapter 1, numerous verses here, 1 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amidia, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from, to Tarshish. Sound familiar? guy named Paul? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And they, it was the people, the the sailors, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. It's interesting because these pagans understood the sovereignty of God in one sense because they knew when they cast lots, God would show them. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Uh Uh-oh. 
So there was a little conversation that happened, and we go down to verse 12. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Ah, yeah, I would too, right? And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I wonder what those vows were. Bet you there was a lot of repentance that day. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Tarshish was in the exact opposite direction that Nineveh was from where Jonah originally was. He went as far west as he could. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do that, God. doesn't matter what you tell me to do. I'm not going to do that. And so he decided to go in the opposite direction. As a matter of fact, he says, you know, here, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. We think, boy, that's quite a noble thing. You've got to think about where Noah was at that point. What did he want to do? He wanted to get as far away from God. What did he not want to do? Preach that if you repent, God would save you to the Ninevites, the Assyrian capital. He says, just throw me into the I'd rather die than go preach a possible repentance to this city. So that's not a noble cause there. He even says it later in chapter 4. He comes back to the same place. Just kill me, God. This is after the revival. But here it's before. He's just saying, you know what, just toss me in because there's no way I want to go to Nineveh. I'd rather die than see you, God, turn that nation to repentance. So that's not a noble thing he's saying there, to save the sailors. He just was was so hard-hearted towards the people that were what he considered his enemies that he would rather die. I want you to know that this fish came, this large fish, and people say, well, that can't happen. You know, Dan, come on, really. There's actually a book that's written about historical things that have happened that are similar to this. And one of the stories is about an English sailor. It's a true story. English sailor uh, somehow fell overboard, and the, the, the sailors saw him eaten by some large fish. Two days later, they found the fish dead. They cut it open, and there was their buddy inside still alive. And the, the stomach juices had bleached his skin white and basically taken off his, the, most of the hair on his body, and he walked around for the rest of his life like that. So that really, we, we have a, a historical record of that actually happening. And there's other records like that. So it's, it, it can happen, and it, it clearly did happen because God's word said it did. God's word said it did. So we believe God's word. So here's Jonah. He's in the belly of this whale. And you can just see the hardness of his heart, even in the belly of this great fish. And you know why I say that? Because it took him three days in the belly of this great fish before he finally came to a place where he said, you know what, I need to repent. Three days of hardness of heart, refusing to repent. Who knows what was going on all in his mind, but three days before he repented. Take a look, God's word again. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then... So in other words, after three days and nights, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, 
You see, he understood who God was. He understood God was sovereign. This hard time that was coming to him was by the hand of God, that God was doing something in his life. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. Verse 9, but, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you that I have vowed, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Yuck. But it happened. All right. And we're always looking for Christ in all of these books of the Bible and it's so clear that this is a picture of Jesus because Jesus only quoted four written prophets in his earthly ministry and Jonah is one of the four. And so it says here in Matthew 12, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we know that's talking about the time between Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a picture also of, of Jesus speaking that uh, a message of repentance and people coming to know him. So we see Christ in this book in that place, Lord. Well, God is sovereign, isn't he? That's one of the truths of this book that we keep hammering on throughout this word that we're going through, that God is sovereign and his work is done in spite of human weakness and imperfection and even rebellion. Jonah says, oh, no, I'm not. And God said, oh, yeah, you are. Jonah said, no, I'm not. And he takes off and he runs, figures he's on a good ship. Then he thinks he's got another out. Just throw me in the water. I'll just drown. I'll be dead. I'm not going to preach to Nineveh. God says, oh, no, you ain't getting out that easy. Big fish swallows them, and in the belly of that fish, God brings Jonah to a place of repentance. The Lord was the one who cast Jonah into the deep. He was the one who rescued him with the great fish. And then the Lord was the one who led him on a 500-mile trip. 500-mile trip to Nineveh. To what would become... Now understand, as, as this picture is painted, to what would become the greatest recorded revival in history. The greatest recorded revival in history. 120,000 people. See, God will do what God wants to do. Take a look at God's word. Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This was after he was vomited out by the great fish, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the, the message that I will tell you. You know what's interesting about this book is that there are 48 verses, and out of those 48 verses, there are only five words of prophecy in it. Even though it's called the Minor Prophet, it's part of the Minor Prophets, there's only five words of prophecy. And those are the words that Jonah spoke to the city of Nineveh. And it, when you read it, it almost sounds like he's trying to speak the minimum so that they don't repent. God's not going to be turned. He, he, he tries to minimize it, so I'll just, okay, God, fine, I'll do it. And he, he does it in, in a, with a begrudging spirit, and he goes to this town, and he keeps the messages as lean and mean as possible. He never talks about their sin. He not, never talks about how they should repent. He never talks about God even. It's very interesting. And so what happens? Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country before this all started? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. Why did he run away from God? Why did he run away from what God commissioned him to do? He tells us, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Remember? Same thing, same heart. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? You see, Jonah had all the right theology, but he had the wrong heart. Be careful that your theology simply isn't in your head, but it makes it to your heart. He knew who God was. That might as well be a description of the Lord in the New Testament, wouldn't it? Look at that. He knew his God. It also shows us here that this lie that is amongst so many people, that there's a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament, that the Old Testament is a God of wrath, where the New Testament is a God of love. Even Jonah knew that we have the same God. He isn't different in the, in the two different testaments. He is the God who is holy, and he loves, his love is holy, and his wrath is holy. And we see a picture of that here, that, you know, it's the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jonah knew that. But you see, Jonah cared more about revenge than the spiritual destiny of 120,000 people. What about us? You know, when I said, do you have these people that you feel are against you, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't, causing your life misery, and you want judgment to come upon them? You know, maybe it's the Richmond north of Richmond. Right? What about it? And what's interesting is this is the second time, the second time that evil pagans were more responsive to God's word than even his own prophet. It was the sailors, first of all, and secondly, it was the city of Nineveh. That's the picture that we see painted. So what would your response be to Jonah? You know what God's response was? It wasn't rage and anger at Jonah. God's response to Jonah's merciless attitude was that he would treat him the same way that he treated Nineveh, with mercy. What a God. That's how he treats us too. What a God. What he does is he lovingly opens Jonah's eyes to his sinful anger and his selfishness and his desire for comfort above the glory of God. Fill in the blank. And God kind of changes the lesson plan. He reverses it now. Because what he did in the beginning was when Jonah was thrown into the water, Jonah went from distress, right, to deliverance. 
So now God is going to show him the other side of the coin. He's going to say, you know what? I'm going to teach you this lesson yet. I know your heart is hard. I know you want to see these people suffer mercilessly. I'm going to work it the other way now, Jonah. I'm going to take you from deliverance to distress. I'm going to use a little plant, a little worm. That's what I'm going to do. Take a look at God's word. Jonah 4, 6 through 8. Now the Lord appointed, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die <laughs> and said, it is better for me to die than to live. What a whining prophet, right? Gee, come on, Jonah, buck up, boy. You see the sovereign hand of God? We see that God is in control over anything and anyone. That God here would use wind, and plant, and a little worm. For what purpose? Why? To teach Jonah that only the Lord decides when and how he pours out his mercy and his wrath. It's not up to you, Jonah. It's up to me. And I've got a plan. So trust me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to run the world. Trust me. I'll give mercy to whom I will give mercy, and I will bring judgment to whom needs judgment, and I will do it in the exact right measure at the exact right time, both justice and mercy intermixed perfectly. So Jonah, don't tell me how to do this. I know. I gave you this little comfort to show you that I can do whatever I have to do to accomplish my ways. And you see, God's mercy isn't grounded in a sentiment. Well, I kind of like this guy more than the other guy or whatever. God's mercy is not grounded in sentiment, but in Jesus' atoning blood. It comes back to the cross, that God was going to show mercy to people because of what Christ did on the cross, something that would happen in the future to Jonah, but is now in the past for us, that Jesus would pay the penalty so that God could be merciful to repentant sinners. Jesus would go to the cross. He would pay the price that was owed for slaves to sin, us, who were separated eternally from God because of our sin. And there was no hope for us to earn our way back. No hope at all. And God, in his mercy and in his kindness, sent his son Jesus to live that perfect, sinless life to meet the requirements of heaven, that you have to be perfect to spend eternity with God, and not one of us can do that. That's why it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what Christ did is he came and he did what we couldn't. He lived that perfect sinless life. He met the requirements for us. And then he took on the penalty that our sin deserved 
And he was punished on the cross for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So their sins would be punished, so God would be just. And that's the picture of the mercy of God, that all who would believe would receive the gift of salvation by God's grace. And in the gospel, we see that in every true act of mercy, somebody pays a price. Every true act of mercy, somebody pays a price. So my question is, will you pay the price to be merciful to others? Somebody has to pay the price. Somebody has to forgive when they were truly wronged. Somebody has to choose to pray for their enemies. You know, when I started this message out and I said maybe there's a political person or a political party that you just want God to judge, to drop the hammer on is what we used to say. Let me ask you this question. How many times have you prayed for that person or that political party or that coworker to be saved, that God would have mercy on them and draw them to himself? That's a cutting question, isn't it? How many times have we done that? Or do we default to be Jonah? You know, here's, here's, here's how it came about, just so you know. In a couple of weeks, we're talking about this. Judgment did come to Nineveh, and it came heavy. It came real heavy. After this generation that repented, there were generations that did not repent and went back to their wicked ways, and God brought judgment, and God will be just. But what about it? Will you pay the price to be merciful, to pray for your enemies, to pray for their salvation? Will you help them when they need help? But they'll get the credit, and I won't, and they'll get the raise. Okay. Will you do what honors God more than what you want to do in your own flesh? selfless concern expressed in selfless deeds somebody whenever mercy is expressed somebody has to pay a price will you pay the price God requires his people to follow his example to be merciful as their father in heaven is merciful here's what God's word says again over and over Luke 6 36 be merciful even as your father is merciful Matthew 18, 32 through 33, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And Romans 5, 10, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Boy. Being merciful isn't easy. It's really hard. I think about my own life and how I've failed in this area so many times. Being merciful is really, really hard. But, you know, you get the power to be able to show mercy from really grasping the depth of God's mercy towards you. That's the point of Matthew chapter 18. That's the very point of Matthew 18 where he's talking about that. I forgave you all this and you won't forgive him? You won't have mercy on him? You see, every moment that you have on this earth and every moment that you are in eternity 
if there is such a thing as a moment in eternity. It's just another extension of God's mercy towards you. That you're not receiving what you deserve, but God's grace is poured out upon you. That Jesus died. It's just another extension of God's incredible mercy and grace towards you. And when we can, can get a hold of that, and we can really let that affect our hearts, then what happens is we can then walk in something that's very difficult. Be merciful to maybe even those who are our enemies. Because there's no doubt that the Assyrians were Jonah's enemies. They were going to slaughter Israel, and they did about 150 years later, I think. But God said, you go and you preach and I'm going to save them. You see, the final question in the book of Jonah is really a question for you and me. Here's what it says. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Should I not have mercy on that person that you were thinking of or that group of people you were thinking of when we started this message? Should I not have mercy on them? Should I, should I not want to see them saved? And then Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing, why is God like this? Why is God so patient? You know, we like to say, why is God so patient with them? Why is God so patient with me? Right? It's t forget the pointing the fingers. Like I always say, you know, you point a finger at them, there's one at them, you got three back at you. What about me? God's kindness towards me, why is he patient? It's meant to lead you to repentance. That's why. And if your heart is thinking, boy, they deserve hell, and I hope they go there, then you need to repent. That's not a heart of the Lord. That doesn't honor God. Should God not have pity on your enemy and extend mercy to them? Because they're just like the people described in verse 11. You may not agree with that, but that's what God's word says, and I believe it, because he's not talking about children here. He's talking about grown men and women, and in some cases, very evil grown men and women in the Assyrian Empire, in the city of Nineveh. The godless disobedient are spiritually like children who do not know their right hand from their left hand. They're objects of God's mercy and compassion. It's hard. But that's what the word of God says. And God loves them just as he loved Nineveh, just as he loved Jonah, just as he loves you. In all our Jonish life, in all of our hard-heartedness, in all of who we are, he still loves us. He's still patient. His mercy comes new every morning. His grace is there. And we need to accept the fact, just as God presented to Jonah, that only God decides when and how to pour out his mercy or his wrath. What he calls you and I to do is to trust him. Trust him. Believe that he is sovereign. He calls the storm. 
to the ship. And when Jonah is thrown in and says it stops just like that, I'm guessing it was just like the waves when Jesus walked on the water. It wasn't just the wind stopped howling, but the waves settled down. Because like I said before, when I lived on the East Coast, when a storm came in, you knew when it was coming before it hit because of the waves. And when the storm had passed, the waves were still coming. And something happened that it just blew these soldiers or sailors away. And they repented. They made vows to God. God will decide when he pours out his mercy and when he pours out his wrath. But do you trust him? Do you trust that God's word is true? First of all, that he is sovereign. He can do anything. He can move the storm. He can move a worm. He'll do whatever he has to do. Do you trust God that God's word is true? That whatever a man sows, that will he reap? Do you believe those truths? Do you trust that God has a plan and he is working it out and that no man can hinder his plan? No one. No president, no cabinet, no nothing can hinder God's plan. God will accomplish what he plans to accomplish. And if we believe in that, we can rest in that. We can trust him. And then because of who we see our great God as, it affects how we live today. And we can see the mercy that is poured out in our life moment by moment. And then we can be merciful just as our God is merciful. Amen? Hard message, but a good one for today, right? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of you, uh, God. We saw fall so short of showing mercy in this cruel and wicked world. And we are so quick to call down your judgment on people that you have compassion on. God, forgive us. Turn our hearts, God. Turn our hearts to be like yours, Lord. Make us like you to be merciful. God, grant us the grace to love in spite of what others are doing to us. God, we're asking you to make us more like Jesus. We trust you, God that you will bring the perfect amount of judgment and mercy in every situation because of who you are. But turn our hearts, God. Cause that anger that's in our hearts to be gone in Jesus' name. Lord, cause the bitterness in our hearts to be released. God, cause us to walk in a joy unspeakable because we understand the mercy that you are pouring out to us moment by moment. And grant us the strength and the grace to extend that mercy to others. And we pray this in the powerful and glorious and beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.